0: Hello, hello, hello. My name is Harley Lewis.
1: I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am jean Lewis.
0: And welcome to The Long Watch, the Internet's premier pro-John Lithgow podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we have been witness to a series of unfortunate events. Yes, we watched the film of the same name, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off?
2: Sure. I have one film in the cinemas to talk about this week. It is Die in a Gunfight. It is a romantic crime film directed by Colin Shifley, and it follows star-crossed lovers Ben Gibbon, played by Diego Bonetta, and Mary Rathcart, Alexandra Daddario plays her, and they are sort of the heirs of two media families who are in this ongoing feud with each other that spans like decades. But they fall in love and their determination to be together causes things to spiral totally out of control. This is Romeo and Juliet if Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino co-directed it. (laughs) It's
0: a weird combo.
2: Yeah, it's extremely stylized. It's got a real sort of comic kind of feeling to it, a comic book feeling with some like super soapy bits of melodrama. There are these imagined spots, these cutaways. There's a great bit where like Ben is arguing with his father at the dinner table and it gradually devolves into like these sort of primate shows of, of alphaness where they, <laughs> they get up on the table and start beating their chests and like screaming at each other, just like, ah, 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 and then it just cuts back to like reality where they're sitting there glaring at each other at the, at the dinner <laughs> table. That's cool. There's some things like that. There's like intentionally cheesy, like dramatic zooms on a face to emphasise a moment. Love that. These animated interludes where it will sort of stop and a narrator, voiced by Billy Crudup, sort of explains certain <laughs> things or gives you the backstory. And I'll show these animated interludes that just really quickly get you up to date on things. There are these paneled scenes. You know how in Twenty Four the yeah. screen <laughs> separates into four different shots. It's
0: like Hulk.
2: Yeah, it's really, really stylized, and it delights in being kooky. It's not for everyone, but it is for me.
0: This sounds like something I would love.
2: Mm. If you don't like what it's doing there with the stylized stuff, then you're out of luck, because the rest of it is all fairly basic. Romeo and Juliet plot storytelling. It tangles up all of these different plot threads running at once. That There's all of these different things going on, and again, I say it's very Tarantino-esque in the sense that it has these plot threads that are disassociated and sort of intersect and then really sort of tumble together at the end, and that's handled okay. I mean, it's nothing special, but really that's the main criticism. Outside of the style, I mean, it's fun and it's pretty, but it's not as good as a lot of the stuff that it's cribbing from. I really, really enjoyed it. I loved the style. I loved the energy that was coming there. Benetta and dadario are just excellent leads. They've got a lot of chemistry. Justin Chatwin plays the villain and he's like a really good sort of... Jason Schwartzman would have played him if this movie was made 10 years ago. And Travis Fimmel turns up as this very bizarre idiosyncratic Australian assassin who just kind of like steals <laughs> every scene that he's in. But... you you really need to be picking up what it's putting down and it has a really sudden ending that I I understand why they went that direction. I agree with it thematically and with what the story has been doing up to that point, but they needed to pad it out a bit more by maybe four or five minutes just so it didn't feel like, bang, we're done, Mm. the end. I am on an island here. It's not been well received critically. It's got a very low IMDb score as well, but sometimes, you know, you just get one of those little flawed Films that nonetheless are aimed right at you. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of those. We've talked about a
1: few of them. Yeah. Like Dark Phoenix is for me, apparently.
2: Mm -hmm. I, at home, watched The Incredibles. It is an animated family superhero movie directed by Brad Bird, and in it, superheroes have been outlawed after a whole bunch of lawsuits. And the super strong Mr. Incredible, played by Craig T. Nelson, and the super stretchy Elastigirl played by Helen Hunt, settle down as Bob and Helen Parr, and they have kids, but Bob is fidgety, and he's lured back in to work for Syndrome, played by Jason Lee, as a superhero, but it's a trap, and so the family must unite to save him. This is still the best Fantastic Four movie that's ever been made. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah. I watched it so much as a child. Okay, so there are these kind of like, Two different types of movies I find revisiting stuff from when I was a kid. There was the stuff that I loved, like capital L loved, your Star Wars, your Harry Potters, your Lord of the Rings, and it doesn't matter how many times I watched it as a kid, I can watch it now and it's still fantastic. Yeah. Then there's the stuff that I liked, and because of how often I watched it as a kid, I'm kind of worn out by it still as an adult. I remember too much of it. I remember the line reads from all of the different scenes I know it all and I don't love it I just like it and that's not enough to sustain the sort of lack of surprise and lack of thrill Mm. that you would get by watching it anew and that's unfortunately where I fall on the first Incredibles movie I like it a lot it's technically brilliant but I, I am just a little bit worn out from it, from all of the, the times hmm. young me watched it.
0: I do like how it's kind of Watchmen for kids.
2: It is. It's doing some adult stuff in mainstream American animation, which is not normal. I mean, there are multiple deaths. There's sort of a subplot where Elastigirl suspects Mr. Incredible is cheating on her. Uh, Mr. Hmm. Incredible and Elastigirl clearly bone down. Yeah. I mean, it's not groundbreaking. Japan says hello, but... It's unexpected from Disney, but it is groundbreaking in its animation. I mean, this is not that many years removed from Toy Story. This is before CGI animated movies took over the world and killed 2D animation. Yeah, this is full 3D. Yeah, and so the fact that characters are behaving in these superhuman ways, you know, the stretching, the super speeds... They're all humans, which is was not common at the time. I mean, you have A, a Bug's Life and Monsters, Inc. and Toy Story, where they, these were all very stylized characters because mm. the technology to render human characters was not great. This pushed that forward in a lot of really interesting ways. It's easily the most ambitious CG film of the time. And it has a fun story. It's got that 60s comic book style. that That's all through it, from the storytelling to the filmmaking. I mean, Michael Giacano certainly got the memo for the score. And the world-building stuff is interesting. The sort of government involvement in suppressing superheroes, the way that they sort of have them in this witness protection program almost. The opening bit was the best part, I think. Seeing the last day before all the lawsuits start happening. Mm. Because that's just a great bit of world-building and and just like some really fun episodic stuff, seeing all these superheroes.
0: Dark impression there too.
2: Mm. I do love bomb voyage
0: yeah Yeah, the french bomb making terrorist
2: i appreciated it so much more because it's it's maybe my favorite joke in the whole movie but it's so subtle but it's just the ridiculousness of ever everyone's calling uh, mr incredible mr incredible mr incredible all throughout that opening sequence and then bomb voyage turns up and says (laughs)
1: I I love when he turns to Bucky and he says, Hello, we're a little busy here. How he just looks at him like, What's this kid Mm. doing here? This is our thing.
2: There Mm. are fun characters here too. I like the family unit. Dash, played by Spencer Fox, and Violet, played by Sarah Val, the children of these superheroes who have gotten superpowers themselves. They are my favorite characters in the film and i I like the family interplay a lot but i think the actual villain plot is really generic syndrome i don't think is a great character i've never thought that he was and i'm kind of bewildered by older oh he's so understandable he's so you know he's so relatable as a villain okay he's killing people (laughs) stay away from me like he's sort of like the internet as a super villain
1: yeah
0: and this isn't the first time i've seen a sidekick become resentful yeah. hero sort of arc, that's Red Hood in a nutshell.
2: Anyways, this is streaming on Disney Plus in Australia, if anyone's interested. I next watched The Incredibles 2. Not the Incredibles 2, Incredibles 2. They've dropped the article, and that infuriates me. <laughs> it is also directed by Bird, and in it, The Incredibles must contend with a new family dynamic as Elastigirl is recruited to campaign for lifting the ban on superheroes, and Mr. Incredible's got to stay at home and look after the kids. Elastigirl is confronted with the rise of a new threat, the Screen Slaver, which hypnotizes people with TV screens. This is a lot of fun. This is a lot fresher for me, obviously. I've only seen it once before in the cinemas. It's probably not as good as the first, but I'm less used to it, so I'm having a little more fun with it this time around. It
1: also looks incredible. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. That's one of the great... Interesting things about watching these movies sort of chronologically back to back. Toy Story was the same thing. It's like the gigantic jumps in animation. You see yeah. the development of the medium, how, how the effects become so much more complex. Here it's, it's exploring the effect on family dynamics and that's, that's really fun. I do like the sort of Mr. Mum stuff <laughs> that is going on with Bob, that he has to be a parent more and deal with Helen in the spotlight, especially with these movies set in the sixties as evidenced by a newspaper in this film, the date on it, sort of commenting on gender dynamics and gender hierarchy in a way that is good for a children's Andy film. he has to contend with
0: Jack-Jack's powers.
2: Oh, yeah, the whole Jack-Jack <laughs> thread is just solid gold. Like, him and the raccoon. Yeah, the fight with him and the raccoon, the stuff with him and Edna. Mm. I love all of that stuff.
1: Oh, Edna Mode, one of the best animated characters in. Absolutely, I love her yeah. monologue about capes in the first movie.
3: Yeah. Do you remember Thunderhead? Tall, storm powers. Nice man, good with kids. Listen. November 15th, of 58. <laughs> All was well, another day saved, when his cape snagged on a missile. Thunderhead was not the brightest ball. Stratogale, April 23rd, 57. Cape caught in a jet turbine. Mm, you can't generalize about this. man, Express Elevator. Oh! Diner guy, snag on takeoff. Splashdown, suck into a vortex.
2: No kicks. There's a whole other thing there. It's not just Jack-Jack, it's Dash and Violet as well who have just sort of come into their own with their powers and are learning how to deal with them at the same time that they're dealing with their own, you know, coming-of-age problems. But once again, the actual villain thread is pretty uninteresting. It facilitates a really good finale, but I'm so much more interested in all of the domestic home life stuff leading up to it.
1: I love the screenslavers is- motif and that part where they are talking to the audience essentially go
3: ahead send your supers to stop me grab your snacks watch your screens and see what happens you are no longer in control
2: i am hmm.
1: which i think is really interesting
2: this is available for streaming also on disney plus i next watched national treasure <laughs> An oh, Cage. It is an adventure film directed by John Turteltaub. In it, Ben Gates, played by Nicolas Cage, is this sort of obsessed treasure hunter. He's obsessed with this family legend about a Templar treasure. And he discovers research that suggests there is a map on the back of, Decl- of the Declaration of Independence. But there are other people looking for it. Evil British people led by Sean Bean. And so he's got to steal the Declaration of Independence to protect it. This is just good, silly fun. It's American Indiana Jones. It's got that classic style of adventure story going on for it. lots of clues, hidden rooms, invisible ink, and it's all sort of wrapped up in American mm. history, revolutionary history specifically. I've gotten into American history since the last time I saw it, mm. and it played a lot better for me this time. All the stuff, the rushing around Washington and yeah. Pennsylvania and Boston and all these places that well, like, really key in the American Revolution against the British. You have the
0: context. I do.
2: I will say it wears its heart on its sleeve to such an extent that it becomes <laughs> really cheesy a lot of the times. Yeah. They needed to dial back the heavy-handed symbolism a lot, like some of the s- stuff that they asked Nicholas Cage to say, like, when they get to, I think it's Boston, wherever it was that they actually signed the Declaration of Independence the first time, and they stand in the room, and they're like, got the Declaration of Independence there, and Nicolas Cage has to say, the last time this was here was when it was being signed. And they all look at each other meaningfully. I mean, it's all right. Let's tone down a bit on that guy. You don't have to point it all out. Mm. But the dynamic with his assistant, Riley, played by Justin Bartha, and this sort of initially hostile National Archives historian, Abigail, played by Diane Kruger, that is pulled into the mix... That's really fun. Riley really works as a comic relief and Abigail is, is a likable love interest. I think Cage is the weak link here. He's not a mainstream action hero. He was never a mainstream action hero. He is he is better when you point him in far stranger and more idiosyncratic directions mm. than what he's asked to do here. And the villain is weak as well. It only works because he's Sean Bean. But it is available for streaming also on Disney+. Plus. Next up, of course, National Treasure Book of Secrets. Again, directed by Turtle Tale. In this, the Gates' ancestor is implicated in the Lincoln assassination. And mm. so they have to search to prove the innocence of their ancestor. And that leads them, however improbably, to the mythical Native American city of gold, Cibola. Uh, but they are competing to get there in time against the private military contractor, Mitchell Wilkinson, played by Ed Harris. This is very much a second National Treasure movie. <laughs> It is doing a lot of the same things over. And my opinions this time were reversed, strangely. The first time I saw the National Treasure movies, I liked the second more than the first. And I, th- I think that's probably because it wasn't t- so tied up in the history I was unfamiliar with. This is tied up in the Lincoln assassination, which I was more familiar with at the time. You actually don't really need to know a lot other than that Lincoln was shot by a guy from the South. But this time around, my opinion sort of switch the other way and i like the first movie better because this is is a, very much a repeat the main plot is a lot less focused it does have this appreciated push into sort of international journeying they go to france they go to england
1: oh, i love the part where they're in is it buckingham palace and yes he has to cause a distraction
3: okay. you and your missus take it out oh now look what you've done you got the little barbies down on us you take the missus outside I'm staying right here. Ben! Whee! Good afternoon, sir. Hello. Been drinking, have we? Just a nip. Just popped down to the pub for a pint. Bit of all right. Going to arrest the man for that. Going to detain a blighter for enjoying his whiskey. It's all right, that's enough, sir. Beggars and mash. Sir? Bob's and squeak. Smoke Smoked deal pie. Sir? Haggis. That's some good
1: Cage.
2: Yes, that's the only time that Cage is sort of allowed to go peak Cage in either of these movies. Let off his
0: leash, peak Cage is a beautiful thing.
2: Hmm. But the motives and and the chains of clues that lead them around the place aren't as clean and straightforward as the first film. Wilkinson is kind of a strange villain. I don't know how the movie wants us to feel. It sort of suggests at some points that they want us to feel sympathy for him, but I don't because he never does anything to get any sympathy. Yeah. But the returning cast has some nice, easy chemistry. You get the father of, of Ben Gates this time, played by John Voigt, he's back, uh, but he has more to do now, and you, you get the addition of an American accented Helen Mirren as the mother.
1: That's odd.
2: Yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell, the American accent is is a good one, but it's strange to hear yeah, Helen yeah. Mirren talking yeah. anything other like it ain't right. Anything else other like the Queen, you know? She sounds like the Queen, she always sounds like the Queen, so for her to sound American just feels strange. But the titular book of secrets is, the president's book of secrets is this sort of conspiracy theory, urban legend, that all of the different presidents have been in possession of a a book that they've written their own, you know, the secret history of the US, basically. All the shit that happened during their tenure that never made the papers, they've written down so that the later presidents know about it.
1: I wonder how Trump fucked it up. Cheeseburger. (laughs)
2: i guarantee you that this book does not exist because trump would not have been able to keep a lid on it no he would say you guys will never believe this he
0: actually did have sexual relations with this woman (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh that's not quite the reveal (laughs) that he might think but so of course here they've got to sort of replicate the sort of memeable i'm gonna steal the declaration of independence with I'm going to kidnap the president of the United States.
1: That's an escalation. All things that you can imagine Nicholas Cage saying to himself in the mirror. So he's got to
2: go and kidnap the president, played by Bruce Greenwood, so he can find out about this book and where it is. And uh, that's kind of fun. I mean, that's the best stretch of the movie, along with the very Indiana Jones style finale in this ancient temple. But I like Bruce Greenwood as a as a fictional president yeah his second time playing a president he previously played jfk in that mm. 13 days movie i talked about a while back i mean
1: if you look at bruce greenwood it just makes sense
2: there's just a big scale here there's lots of shoots at famous locations the actual locations like mount rushmore outside the white house outside the capitol building i mean it really emphasizes the cultural <laughs> history they filmed inside the library of congress which is like a dream for me. I believe I have mentioned on this podcast before that before I decided to try and write about film for a living, I wanted to be a librarian. And I mean, the Library of Congress is just incredible. Like the amount of like the sheer scale of it, the breadth of it. I mean, even the stuff that you just see from the outside is just a tiny fraction of it because they just got levels upon levels upon levels going down underground. Just these stacks of books. Every book that is published in America gets a copy sent by law to the Library of Congress for for storage.
0: And eventually there's a dead alien down there. There's gotta be, just sheer statistics at this point.
1: Fifteen copies of, you know, the Holy Grail. There's an old Templar who's just sort of like, I want to die! But they just don't let him die.
2: I just think it's incredibly cool. I suppose that goes to show how much of a nerd I am, but...
1: I mean, (laughs) it is really nice that they
0: actually... We're able to go to these locations because mm. it gives it this tactile feeling that mm. reconstructing it on a set, just no matter how good the reconstruction is, and I've seen some good reconstructions of historical places, it's never the same.
2: Yeah. I, I do wonder, how have they not made more of these? Because both of the movies made a, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Apparently they are still working on a third one, like as recently as uh, last year. They were saying that they were doing one with the original cast coming back, but they have also greenlit a TV show for Disney Plus, right. which is none of not those characters. It's about a younger Latina woman who gets caught up in all of this stuff.
1: They have to do a plot line where Nicolas
2: Cage comes in. They got sure. it. Sure, and maybe tie it in, tie it into the movies. Yeah, somehow he needs the money. Use it as a launching pad for movie three. I mean, that yeah. really, that's probably. What's going to happen here is if that if that series does well, there'll be mm. a third movie. If it doesn't do well, then there won't be. That's probably the way yeah. this is going to go. It's like but... good
0: adventures like this. It's just
2: fun. Mm. Anyways, that second movie is available streaming on Disney Plus as well. I next watched Howl's Moving Castle. Mm. It is an animated family fantasy film directed by Hayao Miyazaki and is based on the novel by Diana Wynne-Jones. It is set in the magical world of Ingari, where this shy, self-conscious young woman named Sophie, played by Emily Mortimer, has a brief run-in with the feared wizard Hal, played by Christian Bale. But the jealous witch of the waste, who is in love with Hal, she's played by uh, Lauren McCall, she gets the wrong idea about this run-in and curses Sophie, turns her into an old lady, played by Gene Simmons. Not that one.
0: Wildly different movie, otherwise... <laughs>
2: But part of the curse is that she can't tell anyone that she's cursed, and so she sort of manages to get through the door of Hal's moving castle to live there as a cleaning lady while she's trying to figure out a way to get rid of the curse. This is, again, the second Studio Ghibli movie I've seen. I talked about Spirited Away a while back, but I really am seeing why they're so beloved. This is just so creative and epic in its scope. It's this steampunk magical fantasy world there's a a war that's starting that is the backdrop for the story to take place against mm. it just is an incredible bit of world building and it looks stunning there's lots of fun interludes with these interesting bits of magic and visuals the designs are so striking and sophie is an outstanding main character and simmons is excellent as the old lady version of her she's funny she's likable she has a really good dynamic with Calcifer, played by Billy Crystal, and Markle, played by Josh Hutchison. They are respectively the the fire demon that powers Howl's Moving Castle and sort of the child apprentice, respectively. Again, Jean, what do you have you seen this movie?
1: I'm pretty sure that I have okay. seen this, yeah. Well,
2: beware, because as I say, Josh Hutcherson is in it.
1: I don't have anything. <laughs> Have that queued up before we started recording yes yeah <laughs> Jesus Christ I just want to go on the record I don't hate Josh Hutchison I hate Peter alright
2: you, you're among friends Sean you can say how you really feel Say you, how I to really feel <laughs> I think that Sophie's romance with Hal could use uh, more development frankly Hal could use more development he's an extremely interesting character but he's not rounded out enough he's sort of turning into a monster based on the, the impact of some of the deals that he's made and the magic that he's used. He's turning into this giant winged creature. Uh, and that's like a really interesting, like fascinating image, but I think that the movie need a little more time to deal with it. And the final third in general is just too rushed. It introduces ideas without laying the groundwork for them and it's kind of, messy it could do with an extra 10 to 15 minutes of exposition frankly but it's a brilliant film it's gorgeous it's absolutely incredible and it's available for streaming in australia on netflix if anyone's interested i watched the librarian quest for the spear it is a adventure film directed by peter winther it is a tnt television movie in which it follows a guy named flynn carson played by Noel Wiley. He is a professional student who has got a ton of degrees, but has finally sort of been kicked out of university in his 30s. And he is offered an interview as a librarian. But when he gets there, he finds out it's not a normal librarian. It is a special kind of adventurer librarian, a protector of rare knowledge and artefacts. But his first job is to stop the former librarian Edward Wilde, played by Kyle McLaughlin, who is out to steal the spear of destiny from the library's archives. The spear that pierced the side of Christ and is said to give, you know, incredible power to whoever holds it. So Flynn has to travel the world to stop him with his bodyguard Nicole Noon played by Sonia Wolga. This is incredibly silly and cheesy, but not without charm. This is Indiana Jones on a 2004 basic cable budget. It's really shaky, but the idea is one we've seen so many times. It's basically what if Indiana Jones worked for the warehouse at the end of Raiders mm. of the Lost Ark? It's nothing new, but it's comfortable. I mean, the key here is Flynn. He's a great lead character. Wiley has so much charisma in the part. He is extremely smart, this character, but he is otherwise inept. I'm a, I'm a real big Wiley fan. I, I like him a lot every time I see him in things. And it's nice to see him sort of get the opportunity to stretch some comedic muscles that he had had the opportunity to do that, really, up to that point. He'd been at that point, a, a series regular on ER for 10 seasons. It was nice to see that. He has this sort of opposites attract with Nicole. that is pleasant, but I think Wiley and Wolga have more unlikely friends kind of chemistry than romantic chemistry, so I don't think that quite lands the way that they wanted it to. And the supporting characters are all poorly served. McLaughlin has nothing to play as the villain. Jane Curden is totally wasted, and Bob Newhart just doesn't do it for me. I know he's like a comedy legend, but something about the persona grates on me. And this film really strains under the budget. The effects have aged terribly and the production value is low. But I will give it a pass for the ambition of what it is at that time in television history. Next up, The Librarian. Return to King Solomon's Mines, directed by Jonathan Frakes. In this one, Flynn must team up with the archaeologist Emily Davenport, played by Gabriel Anwar, and find the legendary King Solomon's Mines and the Book of Solomon before some bad guys do. This is still silly, it's still cheesy, and it's still charming. And they've gone the James Bond, Indiana Jones route with the female lead, that he's going to have a new girlfriend in each movie. The repartee here between the two of them are sort of defined by intellectual one-upsmanship and I'm not a fan of the way that they point Flynn in this film they sort of make him constantly mansplaining to her and constantly wrong as well and it's sort of at odds with his presentation in the first movie not only as someone who was you know generally had a little bit more self-awareness than that but also as someone who was right all of the time but Anwar has more chemistry with Wiley than Wolga did but a lot of her performance seems dubbed in post for what reason I don't know The core narrative is just cheerful nonsense. The landscapes do the work for the CG now, like they actually got to go to some pretty impressive looking places, all these fields and mountains and things. So that fares better, but when they get to the end and there's this big digital finale with, you know, lots of effects there, that starts to show the same problems. And I don't like the fact that it gives Flynn one of those important backstories, TM. You know, that he's destined for something great. I don't like that. It sort of undercuts the fact that he's just this sort of regular nerd who's thrown into this stuff all over his head, which is what I preferred. And there are just some moments of unintended humour, I think. Stuff that they intended to play dramatically instead plays as funny. But lastly this week, The Librarian. Curse of the Judas Chalice. This is again directed by Frakes. In this one, Flynn is on holiday in New Orleans and he gets caught up in a plot by Russian nationalists to use the legendary Judas Chalice to resurrect Vlad the Impaler, who is, of course, a vampire.
1: Huh. But why, though? Why do Russian nationalists want to... I don't know. It's some
2: bullshit about Transylvanian... using him as a weapon to make okay. Russia great again. But, you know, don't don't think too hard about it. The writers didn't. Anyways, he's got to team up with a French vampire named Simone Renoir, played by Starmacadik, the lady detective in Castle. This is the least of the three... It's kind of off-brand from what these films have been. There's less mythology and legend in this and more vampires kind of just teleporting around in puffs of dust. It's not totally out of the franchise's wheelhouse. I mean, there's always been sort of a supernatural flavour to it, but we're really pushing it here. The New Orleans setting is cool. Not much is done with it, but it's a nice sort of aesthetic and flavour to the story. Captures a bit of that sort of post-Hurricane Katrina kind of city banding together kind of spirit in the way that it's presented, which is... Okay. And Flynn is back to form, which is nice. Wiley gets some great comedy to play, but Simone has a bit of an air of a manic pixie dream girl about her. Caddick is appealing in in a very goofy kind of way, but the French accent that she's putting on strikes me as, shall we say, suspect. Hmm. It definitely has the most bizarre villains of the whole thing. I mean, these Soviet relics, these former KGB people from the USSR who view modern Russia as weak. I mean, it's this weird injection of geopolitics. And it certainly feels strange watching it in 2021 for anyone to consider modern Russia as being weak, mm. given some recent world events. But
1: Instead of Vlad the Impaler, why wouldn't you just try to resurrect to Rasputin?
2: you got to have vampires.
1: You can make Rasputin a
2: vampire. Don't think about it too much, Sean. This is your problem. You're thinking about it. But you get a very good Bruce Davison as a European professor that these Russians force to lead them about as sort of their own stand in for Noel Wiley to get them where they're going. But Bob Newhart's really grading on me on this one. They keep trying to make the, their character cool in a way that Newhart can't sell. They keep trying to imply that he's this total badass, but instead, I mean, Bob Newhart, by all accounts, a very sweet man, a legend, not in any way a badass. Like, no. no. But there are much better effects this time around. I think this, I mean, this is 2008. I think it's sort of just a, a reflection on the fact that effects had now become more affordable and better on a television budget. But this, of course, if anyone is aware of this franchise, probably knows it kicked off a TV series spin-off in 2014 that ran for four seasons. The Librarians, which had a whole bunch of, a whole pack of librarians, and sort of like a a, a squad that was sent out to solve supernatural Mm. mysteries and get these artefacts and things. Noah Wiley was a recurring character on that. And I watched the first season of that before I started the list, I intend to return to it on the TV list, but that's not going to be for quite a while. But that was quite fun. That was quite good. And uh, sort of, it's, it's nice. They, they sort of turned Flynn there basically into this sort of wacky Doctor Who style character. This guy who's sort of at that point been doing it so long by himself that he's sort of just become this like bizarre whirlwind whipping into situations with crazy shit happening all the time and like. Yeah, just wildness following him, and and Wily gets a lot of, like, really good stuff in, in that show. But anyways, that's me done for the week. How about you guys? What have you been watching?
0: So we watched two things over this past week. The first is Muppets Haunted Mansion. It is a new Disney Plus original. On Halloween night, Gonzo the Great is challenged to spend one night in the Haunted Mansion. So this is less connected to the film but rather the ride that it's based on. A lot of the fantastic imagery on the Haunted Mansion ride is repeated here as well. You know, this is just good Muppet stuff.
1: And it's also, like, commented on and kind of made fun of, but in a gentle sort of just having fun kind of way. I
0: personally find the Muppets really charming. And a particular favorite Muppet of mine is Gonzo. Gonzo is one of those Muppets... That has received a lot of characterization.
2: Yeah. Let me guess your favourite John Fuzzy Bear, because of his blistering comedy. No. It seems like you share
1: I actually don't have strong feelings in either direction. I, like, I was always for a big Fozzy fan Bear. of Sandy. Eagle. I like
2: and Animal. Mm. For whatever reason, Dr. Bunsen. <laughs> like oh, honeydew. <laughs> yeah. I honey do.
1: Yeah. I I like him. I like I love Beaker. I love Beaker. Beaker, How he's just sort of being dragged, kicking and screaming into nonsense. Yeah,
2: they have all those old Muppet show episodes on Disney+. Yeah, there's the oh, the
1: episode with Alice Cooper is just incredible.
2: It's classic. It's just classic.
1: Like, Alice Cooper comes in and he tries to get Kermit to sell his soul to the devil.
0: But in this Muppets Haunted Mansion, it is really a character arc for Gonzo. Yeah. Because Gonzo as being one of those characters that got a lot of focus, for example, he has an entire film dedicated to him where he comes from, how he responds to not knowing his place. This is a Gonzo who knows where he is in life, and claims to be unafraid of anything. And in practice, that's true. But his character arc is about, it's okay to be afraid of things. It's okay to be afraid of losing things. It's it's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of love and compassion. It shows that you care. And, you know, we get a lot of celebrity appearances here, as the Muppets want to do. We get... Will Annette as the host, who is this really interesting figure. We get Toji P. Henson as the bride.
1: She's sort of like a black widow kind of she's murdered yeah. all of her husbands and wants uh oh god, what's his name? The pro Pepe. Yeah,
0: because Pepe's here too because he's often the offsider for Gonzo. So he's here too. And he's all fun. We get Darren Chris as the caretaker. He gives us our first big musical number in the piece. And Yvette Nicole Brown as the driver. This is... It's it's pretty short. It is only a short film. It's not a big Muppets movie. But it's charming stuff. I've always enjoyed the Muppets. Some part of me will always... Because the Muppets weren't really that present in my childhood... I was aware of them, but the characters from Sesame Street were more immediately Mm. significant to me.
2: It was the other way around. Yeah? Yeah, I was a big Muppets guy. Mm.
0: There's just an innocence. They
1: have a lot of fun commenting on horror aspects and all of that.
0: But there's this beautiful simplicity to this. It's not trying to be anything more than it is. And in that way, I really, really love this. It's good spooky fun
1: it's got the aesthetics of horror and i really love i really love the musical numbers because some of them go pretty hard like there are some bops here and it's good good a good message there's a really excellent running joke about this freaky looking goat who's just running around the mansion it seems and yeah i just really loved this
0: you can find that on disney plus The second thing we watched is a short interactive film called Escape the Undertaker. This is a WWE sort of choose-your-own-adventure short on Netflix. Possibly the best of these choose-your-own-adventure things is Bandersnatch, the Black Mirror choose-your-own-adventure that they did a couple years back. This is far, far simpler. The plot for this is a more recently emerged group in the WWE called The New Day, consisting of wrestlers Big E, Kofi Kingston, and Xavier Woods, have entered The Undertaker's spooky mansion to look for his urn. And the urn is like the source of his power. Uh, I compare, compared The Undertaker to the D&D creature yeah. Lich and... To defeat a lich, you have to destroy its source of power, but they've they gone in there to try and gain its power. Yeah. But again, this is just yeah. a bit of spooky fun. It's the wrestlers we follow, uh, particularly Xavier Woods, are charming. You could tell yeah, that they enjoy each other as performers. There's this easy chemistry they have with each other that they don't have with The Undertaker <laughs> really yeah. in any way. <laughs> The Undertaker is very, very sinister here. And
1: very stoic and all of that.
0: The Undertaker has been out of the business for a bit now, so it's interesting to see how they work around how he has obviously aged and, you know, how they do all the fight scenes and stuff like that. They give him these really insane magic powers. A lot of the really little touches here are really cool. There's a lot of practical work being done here. Fog machines, false doors, stuff like that. That's always fun to see. And with the WWE, these people
2: are...
1: You know, a lot of them aren't the best actors, but when you put them in a situation where they have to do stunts and all of that stuff, they just throw themselves into it. There's a really great moment in the movie where each member of the New Day has to face their fears, and it is shot in very interesting way it's like this black void with a
0: spotlight just down on them and kofi kingston's particular greatest fear is so incredibly realized because they're using archive footage from different arcs that they've been Mm. a part of in the wwe to sort of build up to this interesting idea, and it's a really, it's a cerebral fear, it's not this, it's not spiders, it's not buried alive, it's his fears about self-worth.
1: Yeah, it's a very human, very, it's very obvious that they gave this one to the best actor out of the three, and... The, The crazy
0: thing is, I didn't expect them to analyze... A fear that's so cerebral.
1: A fear that is so not necessarily immediate, like the danger one would fear with spiders or, you know, a danger, but one that's more terror than horror.
0: Yeah, we went through it once, but we got the opportunity to look at the other fears. But, you know, we got the perfect ending. We don't need to go back to it and I don't really feel like going back to it. Although I do want to shout out that The Undertaker's manager, the character of The Undertaker's manager, was a man by the name of Paul Bearer, which is a hilarious pun. Pro wrestling isn't everybody's thing, but I respect them a great deal as physical performers. Because this is Mm. art. They're, They're putting their bodies on the line to perform, and... You know, it's really commendable. Some wrestlers are better actors than others, but... I could
1: see the incredulous looks on Lawson's face this entire time as we were talking about this. Mm.
2: I'm on board with, like, the crazy storylines and stuff. Yeah. I just I just can't go there. It's like my comics thing. I can't go there. It's too big. I've got too much already on my yeah, plate. Yeah, it's... You know? Blumhouse is making a TV miniseries about the rise of the WWE and all yeah. Vince McMahon and all of that stuff. I'll happily oh, yeah. check in for that.
0: There's insane amounts of melodrama in wrestling. Whenever I like get the urge yeah. to see just two physical performers at the top of their game just performing, and I of
2: course, I of course watched the multiple Scooby Doo animated movies in which he teams up with Wrestlers.
0: Exactly, and you know, it's just yeah, it's good spooky fun. It's the you know, it's the right season for this, you know. It's October, I just want some good spooky fun, and the Muppets and this Undertaker thing really hit that spot for me. I'm not looking for anything frightening, just... The
1: aesthetics, you know? Charming. Spooky houses, yeah. cobwebs, yeah. jack-o'-lanterns, it's... We
2: were what driving by uh, a house near us yesterday, and there's a like pile of like dirt on the front lawn as if it's been dug up, <laughs> and... <laughs> Around it, police tape, police line, do not cross, and then a skull hmm. sitting on top of the pile of dirt. And I was like, I think that's a Halloween <laughs> thing. I mean, I'm assuming it is. Yeah. We're all assuming it is. Let's just hope that we're right.
1: Yeah. You know? it's such a perfect like, trick to play if you're a serial killer.
0: <laughs> just put all that shit out As of I the was open. Falling
1: asleep last night, I had the idea of around Christmas. Getting a pair of black gum boots, get some white stuff to put around the rims of it, and put them on the ground to make it look like I've buried Santa. Just fa- completely face down. These are
0: just charming. Yeah. You can find Escape the Undertaker on Netflix. And now we're going to play for you the trailer to Lemony Snickets, a series of unfortunate events.
3: This is the story of the three Baudelaire children. Violet loved to invent. Her brother, Klaus, loved to read. And their little sister, Sunny, she loved to bite. My name is Lemony Snicket, and it is my duty to tell you their tale. No one knows the precise cause of the Baudelaire fire. And just like that, the Baudelaire children became the Baudelaire orphans. I'm taking you to live with your closest relative. And he's an actor by trade, isn't that exciting? Hello, hello, hello. I am your beloved Count Olaf. My dear. That you do each and everything that pops into my head while I enjoy the enormous fortune your parents left behind. Oh. I'm sorry, I don't speak monkey.
1: Violet, what are we doing here? Maybe he just doesn't make a very good first impression.
3: You're invited to discover. This way, to the reptile room! Whoa. A world built by imagination and strung together by a series. Of unfortunate events. Paramount Pictures and DreamWorks Pictures present. (laughs) Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, and Jim Carrey. Then the unthinkable happened. (laughs) Lemony Snickets, a series of unfortunate events. Directed by Brad Silberling. Now that we're family, I can be the ultimate dad.
1: We're very concerned.
2: That was the trailer for A Series of Unfortunate Events. It is a family adventure film directed by Brad Silberling, and it is based on Daniel Handler's book series of the same name, specifically the first three volumes, The Bad Beginning, The Reptile Room, and The Wide Window, though Handler writes under the pseudonym of Lemony Snicket. We follow the tragic exploits of the three Baudelaire orphans whose parents die in a mysterious fire that takes out the family home at the start of the film. There is Violet, played by Emily Browning, the oldest child, who is a savant when it comes to inventing things, Klaus, played by Liam Aiken, the middle kid who loves to read anything and everything, and lastly, Sonny, played by Kara and Shelby Hoffman, identical twins, still an infant with a superhuman ability to bite things. Despondent, the trio are transported into the custody of Count Olaf, played by Jim Carrey, ostensibly their cousin though that seems unlikely, given that the explanation of his being three or four times removed would make him as old as the kid's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. Mm. This is not a plot hole, however, for Olaf is a homicidal narcissist, an actor, who has schemed his way into custody of the children so he can kill them and take their sizable family fortune for himself. Thwarted both by the Baudelaire's ingenuity and the state of Massachusetts's inheritance laws, The villain of this charming kids film refines his plan to include forcing a child to marry him by threatening to kill her baby sister. But first, he must deal with the sibling's other, less murderous potential guardians, the actually super sweet and competent Uncle Monty, played by Billy Connolly, and the well-meaning but cowardly hypochondriac Aunt Josephine, played by Meryl Streep. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30 second thoughts on what we think of a series of unfortunate events. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Three, two, one, go. I love everything
1: about this movie. The performance of Jim Carrey as Count Olaf is incredible and has been very much an inspiration to me when I've been acting in roles similar to it. I enjoy very much the style of this movie. The Performances of Billy Connolly and Meryl Streep are just incredible, and I love the music here by Thomas Newman.
2: Alright, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go.
1: This movie is a childhood favorite. Our
0: sister read all of the books and introduced us to this film, and it's one we watched so very often. It is burnt into my brain. It's a great story, and with really fun performances, the world that's been constructed is also amazing to behold. Yeah, I just find it really charming and fun.
2: All right. You got me queued up, Sean? Yep. Three, two, one, go. So you might recall in the What We've Been Watching segment, I talked about The Incredibles, and I talked about how there was that difference between movies that I loved and liked, that I watched a lot as a kid, and I think, unfortunately, a series of unfortunate events falls into the incredible side of that. I watched it a lot as a kid. I liked it a lot as a kid. I still like it as an adult, but there is part of me that is sort of worn down by the repetition of it. So I will try and move past that and put that aside in my analysis. But I I think this is just a really idiosyncratic kind of film. It's a very unique style. Jim Carrey, this is among his most tolerable performances. And I I really like the performances of all of the child actors as well. Mm. So... Let's start off with a production history. It's a reasonably brief one. We begin with the books, of course, being published in 1999. They begin to be published in 1999. And of course, as I mentioned in the plot description, Lemony Snicket, the credited author, is just a pen name for the actual author, Daniel Handler. Nickelodeon Movies bought the rights to the series a year later in 2000. And their parent company, Paramount Pictures, agreed at the time to co-finance the film. Terry Gilliam was considered to direct the movie, which, in in my opinion, would have been the best version of this movie, was one directed by Terry Gilliam. But also, horrifyingly, Roman Polanski was considered. Uh. Yes. E- and I can think of nothing more alarming than children's film directed by Roman Polanski. Uh. Yeah. Handler, personally, was keen on the Canadian independent filmmaker Guy Madden, but uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, the director of the many black movies and the Adams Family movies ultimately signed on in 2002. And there was an initial plan that got dropped pretty quickly, but there was the idea at the time that they were going to make it a musical. They moved on from that quickly, though. And Sonnenfeld hired Handler to write the script himself and also cast Jim Carrey as Olaf. But there were tensions between the filmmakers and Paramount over the budget. The studio wanted it to be cheaper, and uh, ultimately they teamed up with DreamWorks to co-finance the film. Paramount kept... Domestic distribution in the US and DreamWorks got international distribution. As part of them coming in, DreamWorks were not really happy with Sonnenfeld for whatever reason. Sonnenfeld thinks that they just didn't like him and so he was sort of forced out. He remains credited as an executive producer on the film though, but Carey decided to stay after he got veto power over whoever the replacement would be. The movie. Began to revolve here in the construction of it at this point around Olaf instead of the kids. It started to revolve around this sort of marketable performance of Jim Carrey rather than actually the, you know, the story of the children. And some of the sharper edges of the books were shaved off. Sonnenfeld in particular was disappointed by this. But ultimately Brad Silberling took the helm and Handler, who had done eight different drafts at this point, was replaced with Robert Gordon who uh, previously co-wrote Galaxy Quest. But Handler approved some of the changes that were made to his story, and he turned down an offer of a co-credit out of respect for Gordon. Although, given how he and Sonnenfeld sort of would team up again to make their own personal vision, one wonders whether it was more not wanting his name too closely associated.
0: Well, I mean, here's the other thing, too. Writing a script is fundamentally different from writing a book. So he might just not have thought that he cracked it as a script.
2: Silberling tried for as practical a shoot as possible. He thought it would help the child actors to have things to interact with. And all of the scenes, save for a few establishing plate shots, were done on a stage. All the outdoor scenes are done indoors on a stage. But it was mostly an uneventful shoot. It went off pretty much without a hitch. But Silberling's first cut that was shown for the studio, was met with criticism from the studio for being too dark. And the studio forced a whole bunch of re-edits after some test screenings and really toned it down into something a lot less sinister than the books are. The film premiered on December the 17th, 2004 in the United States, where it was distributed by Paramount Pictures. Its widest release there was in 3,623 theatres. It opened... Number one, against Spanglish and Flight of the Phoenix, but it really underperformed. It made $211 million on a $140 million budget. And while that sounds okay, it probably didn't make its money back. The general rule of thumb with a movie is you double the listed production price for it to end up being in in the black. Once you factor in, you know, distribution costs, marketing costs, all of that stuff, for them to really make a profit to be comfortable with, you probably want to pretty much double it. So uh, they probably didn't make their money back. Uh, it is nevertheless the 23rd highest-grossing film of 2004, and it remains the 793rd highest-grossing film ever, as of the time of this recording. Hmm. It was released one day earlier, on December the 16th in Australia. Its widest release here was in 243 theatres, where it opened number one against The Motorcycle Diaries and I Heart Huckabees. We overrepresented. We gave them seven point two million dollars of the gross. It, it was not us that was letting the team down. Those numbers are very much in line with some of the the big budget, you know, successful films that we've done on this podcast before. In terms of awards, it had a little bit of an impact. To first off, it is actually an Oscar-winning film. It won Best Achievement in Makeup, but it was also nominated for Art Direction, Costume Design, and Original Score.
0: Hey, all of those earned, yeah.
2: The Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, the Saturn Awards, nominated it for Makeup, Best Fantasy Film and Best DVD Special Edition Release. It was also nominated at the Teen Choice Awards for uh, Choice Movie Actor for Jim Carrey for an action-adventure-slash-thriller and Choice Movie Liar for Jim Carrey, but Jim Carrey also won Choice Movie Bad Guy. It was also nominated at the MTV Movie Awards for Best Villain again for Jim Carrey. But the underperformance at the box office really nixed the intended franchise that Paramount was hoping to get out of this thing. There was a a brief flurry of reports about a potential sequel in 2008 to 2009, mostly driven by Handler making comments in interviews. There was some discussion about maybe making it a stop-motion film and sort of changing the medium with each sequel, but... Ultimately, nothing came of that, and Netflix announced in 2014 that they were going to make a television series version of it, starring Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf, and that premiered in 2017, ran three seasons, adapted all 13 books, uh, and it was actually shepherded to the screen by Barry Sonnenfeld, who, as soon as he heard that it was being made, like, pounced and, like, ran (laughs) into the Netflix studios, to convince them that he had nothing to do with how that movie turned out and to hire him. And he directed 10 of the 25 episodes of the series. Daniel Handler was on it too. He wrote 11 of the 25 episodes. So that is the production history of a series of unfortunate events. And uh, let's start out with this. Is this a comedy film? Because I would argue it's not. I would argue it's more of a, a an adventure film. Sure. I think that Jim Carrey is giving a comedy performance, but I think the film around him is not really a comedy film.
0: Comedy would be a stretch, even for the books. While Olaf is meant to be somewhat oafish in his behaviour, he is still a threat, and that carries on in this film.
2: I remember I saw this in cinemas when I was 10, and it was like a day that you know my cousins and i were all together and my mom and my aunts and uncles were like oh let's take him to the cinemas we go and see a series of unfortunate events and my older cousin was not interested he's i don't want to see a kids movie he was in that sort of stage where he was sort of rejecting children's films that i was i was aware of the film and i think i'd already read one or two of the books but i said to him not I, I was like trying to convince him, no, you don't understand. This is about a middle-aged man trying to kill three children as part of an inheritance scheme.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love the idea of young you using those exact terms. Well, I didn't
2: use those exact terms, but... (laughs) Ultimately, we prevailed and we all went. But I I wondered, watching it this time, what my older cousin's thoughts were sitting in the cinema when the movie opens and that animated elf comes on screen (laughs) whether he really thought that he'd been pumped yeah but yeah I, i suppose i wouldn't call it a comedy so much as like a witty film it is a witty film
1: yeah yeah well that's what you can say about handler's writing and a lot of the plots he makes they're witty they're not outward comedy they're just interesting turns and twists on things in in sort of a wes anderson kind of way
0: I think a lot of that wit comes from the narration here we have from Jude Law as Lemony Snicket.
2: Who becomes an actual character in the stories, not just a narrator as the books continue.
0: And his story is a sad one. But yeah, I love the Jude Law narration here.
2: It pushes the darker elements of this film. Yeah. That Jude Law narration. It pushes the sort of gothic elements, the kind of more, the more like sort of true crime elements of it almost. Really, when you fundamentally come down to it, that whole series is about this guy following these kids around, killing off the people caring for them so that he can ultimately murder them himself for their money.
0: And eventually, eventually in the series, it's not even the money, it's just that that's all he's got.
2: It's, it's just, it's, it's a fairly dark premise for a children's film.
0: And I'm going to tell you, audience, the ending is as bleak as is fitting. For the
1: series. When we watched the Netflix series, which is really good. It is on the list. I just felt hollow afterward. And I think that's the point. Because this is not a situation where people can, you know, leave and be happy.
0: Jude Law tells you at the beginning, in his dulcet tones, that this is not a happy story. It has moments of happiness, moments of peace... But it is, as the title suggests, a series of unfortunate events. And these events are very unfortunate indeed. I think the structure of this movie is one of its strengths. It is adapting three of the books and is it uses The Bad Beginning to bookend.
2: Yeah, they bring it back for an adaptation of The Bad Beginnings finale at the very end of the film.
0: Which I think is very, very well done for the pace.
2: We should probably actually say at this juncture what our experiences with the books are, if any. I know, Jean, you said you had not read any. I read, I think, the first four or five before I sort of dropped off, and I haven't seen the series, but he's on the list. Uh, what about you, Harley?
0: I started reading the first book, but then I got caught up reading Harry Potter. So the Harry Potter started taking a lot of precedence hmm. for me, mainly because they were bigger books, ultimately.
2: For us. As much affection as I have for a series of unfortunate events, they're also better books.
0: Yeah, and, you know, the movies were coming out, so I had kind of a time limit, you know. But yeah, that's my familiarity with the books. Not very familiar with the books themselves, but you could tell in a lot of the narration in both the movie and the series that Handler has such an interesting voice and narration standard. And that goes a long way to the atmosphere of this piece. Like you said, very true crime.
2: Sort of true crime by way of, like, a really classical style of children's story, though. Exactly. Just the sort of, like, I, I, I don't know. The, there's a classicism to some children's books, this idea of, you know, the kids as the problem solvers. Yeah. That all the adults are kind of incompetent. The adults can't get things done as the kids are going get things done. Harry Potter has that to it a lesser degree but like that's a really you know core aspect of a lot of children's stories is you know the kids who go through all this and have to get things done
0: so let's talk about the Baudelaire's Violet Baudelaire played by Emily Browning it's a really good early performance from her
2: it is it is she is of the uh of the four actors playing the the siblings and again the the child actor because of you know workplace laws around using infants on sets. They had twins, identical twins, so they could swap them out. But uh, Emily Browning is probably the one of the four that has had the best career going on. I mean, she's been in a few things that have actually had impact. Uh, she was, of course, the the Ghost Child in Ghost Ship. Yeah. But she has been on American Gods recently for all of its episodes. She. Did an arc on The Affair, that Showtime show. Did you ever see the Kit Harrington Pompeii movie? No. It's so dopey, but it's, like, kind of exactly what you want that movie to be. Oh, that's good. But she's the female lead in that. So she's had a... a and, of course, Sucker Punch, uh, Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. She actually really, like, has took a long time off after a series of unfortunate events, though. That came out in 2004, and between that and Sucker Punch in 2011, she only has... Two other credits. A short film called Stranded in 2006, and a film called, a horror movie called The Uninvited in 2009. So, I don't know, maybe she's just focusing on schooling.
0: Yeah. But decent career.
2: Yeah, decent career. Liam Aiken, on the other hand, not so decent. The the two babies just didn't do anything other than this, really.
0: that, That tends to happen with babies on set.
2: Liam Aiken doesn't have very many credits to his name at all. He has a few, like, one-episode roles on stuff like Law and & Order and Mad Men. But, uh, quite depressingly, the most high-profile thing he's been in since a series on Unfortunate Events is playing Ronnie Ramtek in the Emoji Movie.
0: Oh, Christ.
2: Yeah. But he, he is still an actor. He is still working.
0: He's on the grind. Can you respect that?
2: Not in anything that you'd really probably want to see. <laughs> uh, TV aside, guest roles and TV aside, but, uh, yeah. but I actually think that's unfortunate, because he's really good here. Emily Browning and Liam Macon are both really good here. I mean, uh, you know, the, the kids are kids, they didn't even know what was going on, but um, the babies, I mean, but... Uh, They're pretty good here too, like,
0: they get a lot of good mileage out of the reaction shots from the infants.
3: Mm.
2: And they actually had a little bit of, you know, issues sometimes on set, because they fall asleep in the middle of a take. Yeah. There's a, a blooper on the Blu-ray of one of them falling asleep during the dinner scene with Aunt Josephine <laughs> and Meryl Street just making baby noises to try and wake her up. Aww. Mm.
1: Apparently they were terrified of Carrie and the Olaf.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. And they tried to do the um, the incredibly deadly viper lunge with a real component, and that baby was not having it.
3: No! <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> yeah, there's some some footage basically of them rehearsing that. The baby just like screaming, uh, and then, like, would not be taken anywhere near the cage again. But Aiken and Browning are good. They're both giving really good performances here, really assured performances with some subtlety to them. Uh, And I think that they really fit in with the sort of dry wit of the thing.
1: And they look the part. They look like characters in a Tim Burton movie. (laughs) Which is the vibe that a lot of this really goes for.
2: Oh, yeah. Tim Burton should receive some sort of thank you credit. You know, that's how much they're they're taking from him. Brad Silberling, you know, he was pretty upfront about that as a an inspiration. He had previously done stuff like Casper. Yeah. The live action Casper movie, but he was really a, a, a TV guy mostly. Um, and that's what he... So he directed two movies after this, Ten Items or Less, but then he directed the... Massive bomb that was the Will Farrell Land of the Lost. And they sent him back to TV after that. Yeah. He's got credits recently on the new Charm series and on Jane the Virgin.
0: But I quite like his direction here. The visual elements are just stunning. One of the visual parts that I found just so beautiful is I believe they're driving to Uncle Monty's. It's like that, that landscape with like the swirling green and the water on like that lonely highway. The
1: spirally kind of look.
0: That just looks incredible.
1: And every shot is done in such an assured way. It's confident. Like he knows what he wants to be doing. It's a very clean bit of filmmaking. It's very well put together.
2: It was the right decision to film it all on a set and give it that sort of Wizard of Oz-like quality of... Yeah, it's supposed to be outside, but it's clearly not.
1: <laughs> and they do the same thing for the series. That also makes it feel again more tactile. Yeah, it makes it feel like almost
2: storybook. That's the right word there, Jean. Storybook. It, it has that's the sort of classic, classicism I was talking about. And I finally remember the the parallel I wanted to bring up. There's a very Roald dial feeling. That's that's yes. the Yes, yeah touch point I was looking for there's a very sort of Roald dial style to this a very classical children's story style
0: it's like it's obviously for children but it has that real vein of darkness in it
1: I feel like if you are filming the entire movie in a set you get so much more control because you're not dealing with the rain you're not dealing with you know blistering heat immense winds you can really control almost every aspect of a scene
0: yeah precision is the name of the game here mm. and it's a very precise movie
1: and it just gives it an aesthetic which is amazing like the parts when they're on lacrimose lake you get those
0: skyboxes. yeah like there's that beautiful dark orange gray and black it just looks really
2: good well, I think that probably a good way to, to structure the conversation from here on out is to sort of go through sort of the four blocks of the film. I mean, there's Olaf, Monty, Josephine, and then the finale. So uh, let's start with with Olaf, which is I think going to be probably the most divisive part of this conversation, because as usual, I have a fairly low tolerance for Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey. Mm. I tend to like him when he is more reserved. And you get a bit of that here. Which is why I said at the start, this is one of Kerry's more tolerable performances for me. But uh, I I think he does well on the whole. I think he does pretty well. He's good at actually being sinister and actually being kind of a threatening presence. And you do sort of buy him as this buffoon, but but a, a dangerous one. However, I do struggle with the points where it really feels like the movie has just stopped so that Jim Carrey can be Jim Carrey. And uh, I think, like, a pretty prime example of that for me is, you know, all of the business that he's doing with his actor friends while they're cooking dinner. I didn't need to see all of that. We could have just focused on the, on the kids. Or the, or the long babbling that he does as Stefano in the Monty segment where he's talking about what, what is clearly just improv.
1: The little adults there are hard to locate.
2: But not even that. The story that he's telling Stefano about, you know, the mores or something
1: biting his face
2: while they are drawing the the message on the snake i mean there's the parts like that where i'm like okay i really need to need to do to take that back jim Carrey. i need to do to pull back
1: i did like the comment most of this is reconstructed yeah that's why you can see that my massage is a little askew
2: i think that carrie's performance is impressive especially once he start okay i'm not a fan of captain sham we can get into that but I I think Stefano is an incredibly impressive performance for him.
0: What I like about this version of Olaf is that, especially at the end, but we'll get into that, there are twinges of his backstory in here. There are just those little things that were seeded in the books. I also think that the visual design of Count Olaf here is just incredible.
2: Well, they pretty much just kept it for the Netflix show.
0: Carrie as Olaf really cuts an intimidating figure. Yeah. And at the beginning, as he's doing his thing, walking down the stairs, rushing to hit his mark, asking to take another crack at his response to hearing Klaus say, our parents just died.
2: Yes, which was a moment that was apparently, it was Carrie actually asking, not being satisfied with the take and staying in character, but asking for another... Another go at it. But
1: it works so well for Olaf, because he un- he
0: undersells the initial reaction. Yeah. And then, like,
1: overblows it the second time. I love when he's trying to figure out who the kids are, and he's like... And then he sees... You need to describe that,
2: Sean, instead of of just looking at your hands as if all of the audience can see the gestures you're making. He's just
1: looking at his hands because he's got their names written down, but it's just question marks when it comes to Sonny, and he's like, what is that? I'm sorry, I don't speak monkey. But
0: Olaf immediately becomes a being who's threatening the moment he hits Klaus.
2: Mm. Yeah. I think that's an important beat to have in there.
0: Yeah, exactly. He stops being a buffoon and becomes a danger. Mm. Because this is a guy who has yet to gain his real disdain for the orphans. At this point, he just doesn't care mm. about them really at all beyond the money. And he's fine to wait for that until he figures out how he can get the money sooner.
3: Mm.
2: I do like his troop, his theater troupe.
1: Yeah. Jennifer Coolidge.
0: Is yes, just per- there. I was
2: gonna say particularly <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge.
1: <laughs> she's just going a hundred. I love that. the part at the ending where she's doing that really bad acting. That's an example of good bad acting. Yeah. You know them on the stage.
2: I don't know what that accent is, but I love it.
1: Yeah, it's so it's so much. Yeah. It's just weird. It doesn't sound like it's from anywhere. Have
2: you seen the White Lotus? The HBO series
1: no No, i've heard things
0: about yeah she's
2: apparently fantastic in that like she's getting like emmy buzz
0: like she's fantastic in a lot of stuff oh yeah let's be fair
1: like she's most famous for being stifler's mom but she really is very talented
0: then we get the ending sequence of the bad beginning as structured in this film is the car being left on the train tracks yeah One can imagine you kick out the windows before you resort to inventing a spring-loaded lever-pulling mechanism.
1: See, that's the thing with the kids. They're too clever to think of the simple way out. That's the thing with the VFD in general. Okay,
0: the fact that they're too clever for their own good bites them in the ass later on in the series.
1: Yeah, it actively causes them grief. But
0: again, this bad beginning, it sets up not only... How they respond to the loss of their parents, but also those unanswered questions that they have about their parents.
1: That scene where Klaus is just ready to leave, Hmm. and they have that scene, and the music that plays there is just gorgeous, and marrying it to the words that Jude Law is talking about, sanctuary, is just beautiful.
2: I'm not sure how well Olaf's plan would have gone, uh, in this thing, I think it would have been pretty obvious that he killed him intentionally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like he's in—he's in that convenience store, not buying anything for a long time, and the—the mm. the guy running it, you know, the neighbor from Cougar Town, that's running it.
1: The police are definitely going to chat to him. Yeah.
2: When he hears the train approach, he laughs evilly at the top of his voice. Like, mm, yeah. It's not very subtle. It will be a strange reaction, like if the train actually hit. And the kids all died, and he just continued laughing hysterically. Mm. That would be something you'd mention to the cops. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: The idiot cops, but you know.
1: I do like how, when he's in that store, he's holding a newspaper of, I think it's for a newspaper for actors, and it's got a picture of Lon Chaney as the Phantom of the Opera there. And I think that's so interesting.
2: Yeah, they sort of do everything that they can to keep you from putting a proper date on. The events here. Hmm. I mean, the cars, the the aesthetic, the technology is all put together in a way that keeps you from really
0: anachronistic.
2: Well, not even that, but like it it, it keeps you from anchoring it at any one point in time. You can never you can never nail it down.
0: I think the character of Mister Poe, Timothy Spall,
2: he's so good in this.
0: He is so much fun. Yeah, like the little harumph stuff he does is just. Pitch perfect.
2: The way Timothy Spoil is playing him is as this guy who is basically an accountant. He's a, he's, a, he's a desk guy. And he's playing him basically as a man who has never had to have any interaction with children before in his adult life.
1: To use a quote from uh, Olaf and Stefano, I never really was one. Yeah.
2: It's, it's a really good performance and I like how, how into it he gets. I, I will mention at later points some of my favourite bits with him, but he's a character I like.
0: And Spall's going 100. Yeah, yeah. For this.
1: I prefer Spall as Mr. Poe to the guy who played him in the TV show.
0: Yeah. He's not big enough in the series, I think, as a performance choice.
1: No, I think he's too big oh. in the series. I think Timothy Spall plays him just perfectly, that he is clueless. But he's not this sort of chipper all the time character. He's more just completely out of his depth. Yeah. Dealing with
2: all of this stuff. He's sort of like Mr. Darling in the Peter Pan story.
1: Yeah.
0: So now we get to the reptile room. Uncle Morty's like the best option, right?
2: Yeah. I think this is the a really important thing for the series for the one after Olaf to be the one that is... Really likeable, and you want the kids to end up with him, and he's kind, and he's compassionate. He's funny, he's smart. Exactly. And for him to be the first one murdered by Olaf... Yeah. For, for, for him to be the one where we really understand how this is going to go... Mm. I think that's, that's sort of a, a very clever, very cruel trick that Handler has played in the structure of the story.
1: And, and they do it so well. Billy Connolly, in this role... He's just sunlight, you know? He's just the best person. He's warm, inviting, kind, cheerful. He's everything that the kids
2: need.
0: There's also those little bits of subtlety when he's talking about his family.
2: Well, yeah, and we start getting hints here about the fires.
0: Yes, the VFD, the Volunteer Fire Department.
2: Yes, which is never explicitly said in the film, but... But yeah, sort of hints at the ongoing Secret Society plotline that ran through the whole book series. And uh, I mean, we'll get to the bit with Aunt Josephine where she shows the photo and it's all of them lined up. But there is a guy in the top right of that photo whose face is blurred like he was moving when the photo was taken. And it's pretty clearly, I think, in Kerry.
0: Yes. Because yeah. he was part of the VFD until there was a schism. Between those who choose to put out fires and ju- those who choose to set them
2: yeah so this is stuff that they're obviously setting up in case of a sequel but I think that they they play their hand pretty well in terms of keeping it I mean it's the thing that gave this movie a kind of cultural longevity that the Golden Compass or Aragon couldn't these other children's book adaptations where they really banked on getting a second one
0: like they keep everything contained in a really beautiful way here
2: they, they kept it Contained in such a way that even, as as a kid, I never even expected a sequel. You know, I walked out of that movie thinking that the story was done.
0: They answer plenty of the questions, Mm. you know? And one of the bits that, and this has always frightened me, and has always been really effective, is the moment you see Uncle Monty's hand in that blue light, Mm. that reveal, that's perhaps one of the scariest images I've seen. Because it's it's
1: the subtlety of it. And that monologue that they get Jude Lord to do, about the curious feeling of lo- losing a loved one.
3: It is a curious thing, the death of a loved one. Uncle Monty? It's like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark, and thinking that there's one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air, and there's a sickly moment of dark surprise.
0: And the, the lead up to that as well, where he goes, I would love to tell you that they went to Peru and that they spent the rest of their lives with a caretaker who loved them, cherished their unique qualities, but that's not...
1: That's not the
2: story. Hot take, I think the kids are kind of... They could have done more. Well. Uh, I think that they, they could have really stopped this if they had actually tried, uh, but they didn't. This is my hot take. Because think about it, you know... They know he's there, they know he's sitting outside the room, so just sit outside the room and watch it, you know? Just keep an eye on him the whole night. And
1: also, I would have explicitly said to Monty, Count Olaf, because hmm. Monty knows who that is.
2: Yeah, it is like, well, you've got to remember that, and this is part of the the whole conception of what Handler was going for, I mean, it was in the books, it's what Sonnenfeld was really interested in, and what, was, what sold his pitch when he went in to talk to Netflix about it is, I mean the whole idea of it is that all of the adults are incompetent, even the well-meaning ones. Even like the, the, the judge, Justice Strauss, played by Catherine O'Hara, they don't listen to what the children tell them. Yeah. And Olaf even gets the opportunity to explain that to the other adults at the end.
3: You unspeakable cad! Arrest him! For what? For being a greedy monster!
1: the monster
0: I'm the monster
3: you're the monster come on come on these children tried to tell you but you wouldn't listen no one ever listens
1: to children and that line plays into Olaf's backstory yeah
2: and he's saying it with such venom I think we haven't overstepped it yet but I think we should just be careful in terms of plot stuff that's not in the film because it does actually, in, in this particular instance, act as a spoiler for, an, uh, for a TV show. Yeah. Yes.
0: There's a lot more to that, though. Yeah. But just know Olaf is connected in a very significant way. The loss of Uncle Monty in this segment is so hard to sit through every time. And I love the reptile room, just aesthetically
2: speaking let's talk about stefano because i think it is the most successful of his disguises and i think it is it is really good work by jim carrey the sort of character creation aspect of that they open the door and there he is talking in that voice
3: hello i am uh, looking for dr montgomery montgomery I am uh, Stefano, I am an Italian man, and uh, I am here to assist him in his uh, research uh, as best I can, as well as to uh, facilitate and uh, remain observatory.
0: Then he threatens them with a straight-up Bowie knife. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this is the one where you can kind of forgive the, the police and Poe for not recognising sure. it
1: Yeah, I can see that. But see, the interesting thing about Captain Sham is it's a... It's a disguise that's not meant to last forever. Neither is Stefano. Stefano can last longer. The
0: Stefano disguise is meant to fool both the children and yeah. the adults. he's meant
2: to get them to Peru. Yeah. Mm. Where there's lax adoption laws. The, when the children challenge him, he's like, he's like really disappointed because I feel like, I feel like he really thought he was going to trick him.
0: Mm. Yeah. He loves the role of Stefano.
2: This is an interesting thing about the actor part of Olaf. I think he likes the character of Stefano. Like he says, Absolutely. It, he says it at the end. This was such a good character. Like he's complaining that he's been found <laughs> out.
0: This was such a good role.
2: But it's like when he is challenged by the children at the start, he's really irritated and he's like, why, why would you say that? <laughs> like-
0: <laughs> he is so wrapped up in his own ability as an actor.
2: Yes, but here here is the other thing is like why is he so good as Stefano and to a lesser extent Sham but terrible on stage in the the play at the end.
0: Look, I think it's the fact that Olaf can't work with a script. He's a wonderful improviser, right? He gets put on the spot, he's got to think it through. That's when his brain is really turning. But when he's in front of an audience audience, starts to choke.
2: He also really has n- no one to bounce off of at the end there. Exactly. I mean, he's doing improv against real people who are, you know, beha- not behaving in, like, the wooden deer-in-a-headlights way that the rest of the troop are at the end there. But. And I think Sham, as a
1: character, and I think this is a good way of moving into the white Well, I just, I just
2: want to say, like, just to bring it back to, to Poe, that's my favourite moment of the whole movie, is, <laughs> is that the best joke, the best line... Is when they're on the ferry to uh, to the lake, and Poe just turns around to the children in the car and says,
3: "Rest assured, children, the authorities are in hot pursuit of Mister Stefano from his eyebrowless forehead to his untattooed ankle. The Italian fiend."
2: <laughs> it's such a great callback to the whole Italian thing because that was like the best part because that was not the original makeup they had for Stefano. Oh. It's, it's on the disc and it's, it's much more of a sort of, you know, a guy from Goodfellas basically is what he looks like. And it's much more, clearly much more based around the idea of that I am an Italian man line. But I think it's, it's such a smart call to just have him be the, the most non Italian guy you could possibly imagine.
1: <laughs> and I also love that. That line implies that Mr. Poe has still fallen for it.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. That's the common thing. They never get that it's Olaf that's doing these things in the books.
0: What I love is the fact that Olaf clearly didn't do any research when constructing the identity of (laughs) Stefano, but he does do his research when becoming Captain Sham so he could target Aunt Josephine so specifically.
2: Yeah. But like he he clearly made the Italian thing up on the spot. Oh yeah. But that's that line of Mr. Pose is I think like a great cherry on top for that joke of bringing it back around at the end, really highlighting the absurdity of the whole disguise and the joke that all of the the adults still believe it.
1: And I mean the whole thing with Monty thinking he's a spy from the Herpetological Society, like he wants to steal the incredibly deadly viper, which is not deadly at all.
0: It's a misnomer. To a joke played on the stuff shirt.
1: Yeah, but on the topic of Captain Sham, he's not a disguise or a character who is meant to fool everyone. He's literally just there
2: to get Josephine to the house.
0: He's it's very targeted, very precise. That's why he brings in the stuff about. Well, no, it
2: has to be because she wills. She, he forces her to will him to will them to Captain Sham.
0: Well, then Captain Sham can pass that over to.
2: They've got to hold up in front of the cops and Poe.
0: Well, I think Captain Sham could have done so, because the cops and Poe are morons.
1: And there's also the fact that like, he speaks in such a way that you can barely tell what he's saying half the time.
0: It's just meant to overload. That's what the purpose for Sham is.
2: There is something just bizarre about seeing Jim Carrey and Meryl Streep on screen together. It's like he's two entirely different corners of movies. Like, the streams crossing in Ghostbusters, it should never have happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's just strange. Meryl Streep and Jim Carrey should not come into contact with each other in a film. But they're so good together here. I mean, Meryl Streep is is doing one of... She, she likes to do this, to do these, like, interesting little off-brand performances. Uh, and she u- usually does that in the bigger blockbuster fair I mean, Mamma Mia, again, is a, is another thing what she's doing playing the president in the Adam McKay movie uh, coming up. Mm. She she has a certain... There's a certain image of her as an actor that is very much defined by the sort of oscar stuff, but she likes to sort of every now and then...
0: Just have a bit of fun.
2: Yeah, just to do something fun, and those tend to be some of her most off-brand performances, which I, I quite like.
0: And Olaf is clearly targeting points of trauma for her. Like... He claims that he lost his leg to the lacrimose leeches the same way that her husband, Ike, died. Yeah. Like, he, do- he did his
2: research. And this is a woman who clearly has some of these anxiety I, having obsessive-compulsive disorder myself, I think that if she has obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is pretty, uh, pretty matching on to that. But I, I think... The movie does a good job of you know, showing the impact that the, the trauma of her husband dying had on the acceleration of that, which is not an uncommon thing for, for certain conditions like that to, to really be sent into hyperdrive by trauma.
1: Yeah, it seemed to be that the limit of her obsession and compulsion was grammar, a, a thing that she shared with Ike. But after his death, it just spiraled outward into everything else in her life. But
2: she she had the uh she had the don't go in the water until an hour after swimming. Yeah,
1: just don't go in the water there
2: because the leeches are there. Just don't do it. But I think her fear of realtors. That is such a great cutaway, though. That is such when she says she has a fear of realtors, and then it cuts away to her opening the door, and Jane Lynch is there, like so briefly.
3: There are two kinds of fears. Rational and irrational. Being afraid of realtors is an irrational fear. Is this a bad time?
1: (laughs) I think the fear of realtors comes from the fact that she is afraid of moving forward. Hmm. Leaving Ike behind. Because that is, in essence, what... Fear is. It's fear of something that will happen in the future. It's much more comfortable and safe to live in the past.
2: It's such a great visual representation of that too, that she lives in this really rickety house on the edge of a cliff. That she she herself is a woman who's who's barely in control. She's on the edge. She's barely holding it together. She's constantly on the verge of a total breakdown. And to visualize that in this house that is equally on the edge, is equally barely holding it on together. And of course that, that once, once shit actually does hit the fan and she has the breakdown, so does the house. Mm. Yeah. That's a really dark scene. Again, we talk about how, how dark some of this stuff is, even from it's the fact that it's toned down. But like, you know, the kids go back and they find what appears to be the, the location of a suicide with Mm. complete with note. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty dark, moment for a kids film and it's it's eerily staged as well with the the wind and the approaching tornado or the hurricane or yeah it's hurricane ike isn't it and uh the you know all the clouds and everything and then i i love it that she is in some ways vindicated that everything that she was afraid of happening actually does happen <laughs> in the collapse of the house
0: you see the fire heating up the uh, doorknob. it's like oh
1: come on no way And I I like that it's not an actual suicide note. That she put in a code there, which ties back to the VFD thing of codes and disguises and all of these things that they did. Because it would have actively been impossible for Josephine to spell things incorrectly, even if she was in a state. Because grammar is... Grammar and spelling are just these things that seem to be...
0: And and it's not just that it's she was misspelling easy words. Yeah, she just simp- as cold as ice. She simply would not misspell these words.
2: It's a really um a smart call by the character.
0: Olaf would buy it because he's not that bright on the book learning.
2: And the thing that really does Josephine in at the end is that she corrects him uh, <laughs> on his grammar. You you really do get the impression that Olaf is is kind of on the. On the verge of letting her go.
1: Yeah, because she was cowardly and gave the kids to him.
2: Yeah, I, I think that there's a general... I mean, he doesn't kill people for fun. He, he's willing to kill people, but... He kills them when it's necessary. I mean, I get it. It's such a cruel punch to the gut for those kids that yeah. this woman sort of tries to sell them out at the end to save herself. And again, it's such a great structural thing to have that in there, the, the disillusionment with all of these adults.
0: Like there's there's also the fact that Ike was investigating the fires. Yeah. And it's implied he was He was close. He was close.
2: Well she she pretty much states that the kid's parents knew who it was. Anyways, let's let's move on to the finale. Have you heard that we have a play? This is again the, the forced shotgun marriage to the kid mm. to a bit much for a for a children's film. But this is a lot of fun this segment. I think it's probably my favorite of the four segments just because of all of the the theatricality of it. Yeah. It's a terrible terrible play. Oh, absolutely. Cuz they've they've rapidly rewritten it from whatever it was cuz they've uh, <laughs> they've just drawn over the poster that they had previously designed for it to change carriage to marriage. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Imagine being the production designer on that. It's like, really, you're changing it now? A
2: week out? I really uh, question, you know, so far gone are these adults that they do not even find it odd that this man who is related to this young woman would cast her as his love interest in a play when he has two, you know, adult actresses. Working with him. I mean, nowadays you can, you can bet that that critic character would be writing a piece for Slate about that. Oh, yeah. Dustin Hoffman! Yeah. My favorite show, again, this is, is, is always there to undercut the adults and to make them seem like totally, total idiots, total incompetence. But the way that the adults like eat up this objectively terrible play. Yeah. Like they love it. How when, um, when they're doing the vows, it cuts back to Cedric the Entertainer and (laughs) Dustin Hoffman and there's like, she doesn't deserve him. No, she doesn't. Are you thinking that? I am thinking that she doesn't deserve
0: him. I loved the bit with, like, the little toy biplane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they had this kind of budget.
1: It's a, what, the, <laughs> what kind of budget do you mean? You're in the back of this guy's house in his dilapidated backyard.
2: And a lot of that was improv between Hoffman and Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah. There's some some extra bits like, they, they sort of did this routine where they became friends by the end of it, the characters. <laughs> That's fun.
0: I also like how this last segment reveals the cause of the Baudelaire fire.
2: Yeah, and it's like, we haven't really talked about the Thomas Newman score, other than what you mentioned in, in your bit, Jean, your 30-second intro, but it's really, really good. It's
1: exceptional.
2: It does such a great job of establishing the atmosphere and the environment here. And the way that it works in concert with the filmmaking, the visual filmmaking, of that moment, Harley, that you were, you were just bringing up of Klaus finding the, the magnifying glass, the mirror that starts the fires, and the way that that music comes in and you get the flashbacks to Poe finding them on the beach, to all of that stuff.
0: Like, and that simple line from Klaus, these things don't just happen.
3: children, I'm afraid I must inform you of of an extremely unfortunate event. I'm very, very sorry to tell you this, but your parents have perished in a fire that's destroyed your entire home. These things don't just happen.
0: It's just incredible, that moment.
1: I mean, Thomas Newman is such an idiosyncratic composer, because he uses a lot of world music influences, these percussion loops... But he can also just dr- drop that entirely and do something like 1917. And he can do Skyfall Inspector and, and Finding Nemo. And it's just incredible.
0: I do like how they pay a bit of lip service to the Violet solution to getting out of the marriage contract in the book. How Olaf stops her from signing with her non dominant hand.
2: Yeah, because the contract has got to be signed in your own hand.
0: Yeah, that's a clever little reference stamp.
1: I do love how Catherine O'Hara is playing the judge. She, she comes back as a character in the TV show, but I just love the way she
2: does the, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But then we get to this ending, which is a, it gives, it's a, I think it's a good call to give the movie the finality that it does. Because mm. it's not actually the original ending that they filmed. That is on the Blu-ray as well. And in it, After Olaf's scheme fails, he gets basically gets hoisted up on the wires that he's attached to for the play and, like, zooms out over the heads of everyone and gets away. But they add that bit in... I'm assuming that this was sort of the studio mandate in the the attempts to make it more family-friendly, but they add in that whole bit of him being caught and uh, apparently severely beaten by the mob of angry (laughs) adults watching the play. That is a nice moment that you get from Poe and Cedric the Entertainer and all the others. Yeah. It, it's satisfying to see them realise it. And we already mentioned, you know, Olaf gets that opportunity to tell them their own complicity and all of it. But you you get that added thing of the judge making him go through all of the things that the kids had to go through, which is probably what got him out on appeal, because that is, I think, cruel and unusual punishment by the definition of the law.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's an insane idea.
2: That's probably why he's on the streets again. Mm. But I like this, this last scene in the Baudelaire mansion. Yeah. Where they find this letter that their parents had once, that their parents had once gone on holiday overseas and had been out there for so long that the, the kids thought that they had forgotten them. And when they came back, they discovered that their parents had actually written them this really long letter in the mail and had just gotten lost. Yeah. To which I say, one letter... <laughs> but whatever, I'll I'll accept it. They go to the ruins of their home in the last scene and they they find that this letter, which has been all over the world apparently, trying to find the place it's supposed to be, has finally been delivered to this burnt-out husk of a house by a lazy postman who did not want to, to, to take it back to the office upon seeing that there is clearly no one living at this abode.
1: <laughs> and the track that plays, The Letter That Never Came, is just gorgeous. I just love the... Some of the lines here.
0: At times the world can seem an unfriendly and sinister place. But believe us when we say there is much more good in it than bad. All you have to do is look hard enough. And what might seem to be a series of unfortunate events may in fact be the first steps of a journey. And the way that they call their children my darlings is such a bittersweet moment. Because as an audience we never got to know Bertrand and Beatrice. The Baudelaire parents. But that it's it's so tragic that you know Sonny's never really gonna get to know them. When the movie ended for us this time, I turned to John and said, And the Baudelaire's lived happily ever after. In this canon,
1: nothing else happens. But still, that's that's gotta be a lot of therapy that they're gonna have to have. Yeah.
2: Oh please, you think Mr. Poe is getting them therapy? No, probably not.
1: The ending credits is incredible as well.
2: I always like it when movies do something really creative with the end credits animations.
1: Yeah. And the and the track that's playing there, Drive Away, is just this... I mean, I can't speak highly enough of the Thomas Newman score. It's just spooky and off-kilter and so fascinating.
2: All right, then. So why don't we... Well, there's nothing in the IMDb Parents Guide. So why don't we move on to... Who our MVP for this movie is, what our favourite scene or sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast's patron saint, character actor John Lithgow. I will start us off, and I will say that my MVP for this movie is Liam Aiken and Emily Browning. I sort of thought about it giving it to Timothy Spole, but no, it, I think it has to be the kid actors, with all respect to the, to the twins that played the baby, but... Uh, I'm I'm giving it to to these two, Aiken and Browning, because they're giving really assured, really confident, really effective performances as these these child actors. They really fit into the tone of the film well. They fit into the humour and the wit of the film really well. And I find it impressive. I find that they are more than capable of matching up against Jim Carrey, of withstanding being on the same set as Carey while he's doing his thing, withstanding being on the same set as Meryl Streep and Billy Connolly and all of these legendary actors, they're able to do it and not get overshadowed. And uh, I think that that's quite a testament to how good their performances are here.
1: And they play the characters with such intelligence. You can tell that these characters are whip-smart, and you can see it in their eyes that they're fully in the characters
2: in terms of my favorite scene or sequence i mean i said that the the fourth part was my favorite stretch of the film but my favorite scene or sequence is probably not among them in there but i think i have to go for the train track scene where Olaf first tries to kill them because i haven't seen this movie for a a long time but whenever i've thought of it i've thought of that scene that's the scene i go to in my head that's a scene that i remember the most that made the most impact on me and i think it's really well done as a sequence, it's it's tense, it's creepy. I mean, there's that really horrifying reveal that he's been studying inheritance law um, with the book that he's left in the back seat. The fact that the locks just Child mm, Childproof. But yeah, it's it's a creative way they get out of it. It's well-staged. The way that they sort of have the, the phone telephone with Mr. Poe. Um, His reaction to seeing
1: the baby behind the wheel.
2: <laughs> just one of many ways of, of him... Coming up with an absurd explanation for why it isn't Olaf that's trying to kill them, while they, why they aren't trying to be killed. Like, Klaus says it at the end, he was trying to kill us, and he says, Oh, don't be so dramatic, Klaus, the vehicle wasn't even in gear. He's taking them away
1: because a baby as young as Sonny shouldn't be allowed to try. But
2: also, does he even have the authority at that point? I don't think so. Olaf has I don't been know. awarded custody by the court. Anyway. And he's just a banker. And if that's something that needs happening, then un- un- Uncle Monty was going to get in real trouble for taking them out of the country the day after they arrived. Anyways, that's my favourite scene of secrets. In terms of who I would recast with John Lithgow, I've actually got to go with Olaf. I think he would make a very effective Olaf. I mean, for as for as good a serious actor as he, as he is, as good as he is in emotional stuff, some really subtle acting. And we have so far in these segments tended to cast him in Serious roles rather than outright comedic ones He can go big when he wants to Oh
1: absolutely Oh my
3: god <laughs> I'm gorgeous For real That's all i did, but- Shut up young big booty you coward You're the weakest individual I ever know I happen to know that every word in your book Was published years ago Perhaps you've read The dictionary Oh <laughs> uh, Oh uh. Pancakes go good with grass. I will eat your
1: face! Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> Me!
2: He can go big. And uh, I think he would do this really well, but I also think that he would really leave in a lot of my problems with the Olaf character as at feeling a lot of times like the Jim Carrey show that a lot of Jim Carrey's movies tend to become, that the, the movie around him stops for Jim Carrey. I think that Lithgow would have done a better job of incorporating that comedy into the narrative and make it more a part of the the story and the, the vibe that's going on, rather than it being yet another little moment for Jim Carrey to do improv for us all, no matter whether it makes sense for the film. So yes, I would absolutely go with John Lithgow as Olaf. How about you guys?
0: I would have to say my MVP here is Jude Law. I adore his narration here. It is not only really effective, but it really helps explaining how the characters feel in a lot of ways. Sometimes it can be that can be too much in a film, but the way that the narration is written and performed here is not only helpful, but necessary. There's that particular bit of narration after Uncle Monty is killed where he says, If you have ever lost someone very important to you, then you already know how it feels. And if you haven't, you cannot possibly imagine it. I don't know, there's there's something about this narration that just really works for me. My favorite scene or sequence is, you know, I don't enjoy seeing it, but it's the whole stuff with Uncle Monty dying and being killed. It's just effective. And if I had to replace anybody with John Lithgow, I'd give him the Olaf role. I, I think everything Lawson said was spot on. I like Carrie here, don't get me wrong, I really like Carrie here. But I would definitely give John Go a chance with the character. Uh, I just have to say, I much prefer Neil Patrick Harris' version of Olaf. Don't know where else I'd be able to put that, but there it is. John, what about you?
1: For me, I'm going to give it to Thomas Newman. Because the music is just so incredible. It fits the tone of the movie to a T. The way that the edits. Is done in concert with the music is beautiful. The lack of music in certain situations, like when the hurricane hits the house, is so smart. And yeah, I just watching this movie again really showed me that the music just adds to the atmosphere of the film so much. Runner up, I give it to Jim Carrey because I think Olaf is so fascinating. For my favorite scene or sequence, It's everything in the reptile room up until Monty's death. Because he's just such a warm person that it's just a joy to see this performance. And, you know, my best wishes to Billy Connolly, who is suffering from Parkinson's at the moment. He'll probably never hear this, but, you know, he is such an incredible performer. And... Thoughts and prayers with him and his family. And for who I would get John Lithgow to play, it's interesting because I see where you're coming from with Olaf, and everything in my brain is screaming at me to say, have John Lithgow as Mr. (laughs) Poe. But if you'll allow me, I want to do something a bit odd. John Lithgow as Stefano.
0: Okay. What, the guy
2: in the front of the train?
1: No, that's Gustav.
2: Oh, right.
1: I like the idea of, actually, yeah, fair enough, John Lithgow as Olaf, because <laughs>
0: just you to don't... see this what This has his... been a real
2: rollercoaster.
0: You don't want to miss him as Captain Sham, either.
1: Just to see what his interpretations would be of those characters, what would his Stefano be? Because I just sent you a some clips of Neil Patrick Harris's Stefano, and it's so different. I would just love to see what Lithgow would bring to the role. And yeah, John Lithgow is just almost built for the role.
0: So uh, now we will vote to see whether or not we are a pro series of unfortunate events
2: podcast. Lawson? I am going to disappoint you once again. I have recognized my role here as the Simon Cowell of this voting segment. I can't. No, I can't. I do like the movie. I do think it is really well made. I just have a few too many problems with it, like the carry domination. Just, just some of the the pitching of it. I I am a little disenchanted after learning it was toned down a bit. It just didn't connect with me in the way that I think it needed to connect for me to to say that we are a pro a series of unfortunate events podcast. I and I am also sort of aware now of my my role here as the first person who gets a vote here to sort of be the bulwark. I sort of give you guys permission to do what your heart wants, rather than what your brain might tell you. But, yeah, can't do it, sorry. But I am not, I am not, I should say, anti this by any means.
0: Good. I would have to agree with you, Lawson.
2: The look of betrayal on Jean's face right now is incredible.
0: Look, I love this, I really do, but like Lawson has been saying these past weeks, this has to be the best of the best, you
2: know? It's really getting a little easier now, I think, because we have these things like Chicago and Pirates of the Caribbean and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and The Village. Like, we have the standard there that we can line it up against. And I don't hate this movie to any
0: degree, and the Carrie stuff doesn't bother me as much, but, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not of the same calibre. It just, it simply isn't as much as I enjoy
1: it and love it. I am disappointed. Um, <laughs> I'm pro this movie. It's perfect. I don't know what the hell you people are talking about. I love it. I I don't understand why we need to make this sort of distinction between... Uh, I, I'm pro it. I'm just... Wow.
2: There we go. Sadly, we are not a pro A Series of Unfortunate Events podcast.
1: Aww. And it's your fault.
0: Yeah. I think we've made it perfectly clear we're not anti it, so there's no real point in setting that to a vote.
2: I think, personally, the way that we should handle this going forward is probably one of us will need to volunteer if we are anti at this point for us to really do a proper vote. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Otherwise, we'd really just be repeating ourselves. But, but yeah. But in terms of what we're doing next week, we are moving on to another musical. We, We do like musicals on this podcast.
1: We do. We're a pro-musical podcast.
2: We are. We've done a few pretty big ones, and now we're doing another pretty big one. Next week, we will be talking about the Joel Schumacher-directed adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera, the Andrew Lloyd Webber stage musical, uh, adapted into a film in 2004, starring Gerard Butler, Emmy Rossum, Patrick Wilson. So if you would like to follow along home with that, you can find it available for purchase and rental on the YouTube and Apple stores.
0: If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. Uh, You can find Lawson at X Fifty the Candy County, if I join myself on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about a series of unfortunate events? Do you like the film? Have you seen the series? Have you read the books? What do you think about just the story on the whole? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Or are you ambivalent? You can also like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. On podcast apps like Podbean, you can comment on specific episodes, but broadly speaking, it's for the show on the whole, as opposed to single episodes. We still do take movie recommendations there, as well as feedback. Just make it a little more specific if you intend it to be specific. Please do like, comment, and subscribe. All of those algorithm-pleasing things. Last I heard, Lawson was not fond of his exhibit and was requesting a transfer to something more suiting of his temperament. But I'm not sure he'll get it. It not only takes time for the machines to process the request, but also to find the right spot for a person. Sometimes people have to be moved around to accommodate requests. Ideally, the machines would like for everyone to be placed in an enclosure that they would not only enjoy, but be best suited to. But it's a process of elimination and experimentation, as is the case with most machine learning.
2: Where does Lawson want to be put? That's up to him. Put me in the Library of Congress.
0: We'll see. I have been Harley Lewis, an Australian man.
2: I have been Lawson
1: Keeney. And I have been very disappointed in both of you.